Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. It is actually me. I sound a bit odd, but uh, that's only. <laughs> Because I've been uh, imbibing too much good food. Anyway, uh, thank you for tuning in to an hour of science and to listening to Triple R. This is our very last show for the year. Fear not, we'll be back next year. In the studio with me is Chris KP. Good morning, buddy. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm sounding great, aren't you I? You are, you are, yes. If, yeah. if, if you were going to have uh, you know a ringtone of your own voice, now's the time to do it. Oh, really? Well, if, if you because were going to be that crazy, yeah, sure. The extra... <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Dr. Linden is in the studio as well. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Thanks for having me in, for accommodating me today. Great to be here. Accommodating you? We love having you in. It's great to have you in. <laughs> well, yeah, it's yes. good to be back. Yeah, good to have you in. Now, we have uh, the rest of the team, of course, is online on Zoom. We've got uh, Gracie all the way from Texas. Good morning, Gracie. Good morning. How are you all? Uh, we're good. We're good. We've got Ewan freshly back from a trip to Nepal. <coughs> Good morning, Dr. Shane, and good morning, all. Good to see you, Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Lovely to see you again. Good to see you too. We've got Stacey coming from the country somewhere, no doubt. Morning, Dr. Shane. Uh, good to hear your new radio voice. Oh, thanks. Finally, <laughs> after 25 years, you got yourself a sexy radio voice. <laughs> oh, my God. That's why she's not in the studio. She's just going to drop she interview bombs like that. She can't handle it. Well, <laughs> What people can't see out there in Radioland is uh, Stacey's background is highly offensive. It's got the it's got the year twenty twenty three written on it, which I refuse to accept. <laughs> We're not there yet. Um, we've got Ray on the line. Good morning, Ray. Morning, Doctor Shane. All right, folks, uh, what we're going to do for you today is we are going to review the year in science that we have been through. Some amazing stuff has been going on, and all of the team have got their little favorites. I have no idea what they've chosen. It's usually a bit <laughs> concerning. Uh, this could be done in 10 minutes. Um, we can hand over early to eat it, or um, we may have to you know, squish things down at the end, but either way, it'll be a bit of fun. Are you suggesting that the team doesn't want to talk about science? I don't know. I'm not I sure how know. we're going to feel at it's, the end of the year. Yeah, it's been a long year. I think yeah, everyone's true. a little bit tired. No, we should be good. Uh, we've got some amazing stuff to talk about, though. And Dr. Linden, I think we're going to start with you because you've got an extra package with you today. So yes, we want to get, yes. get things going while the going is good. I am standing up rocking a newborn while I talk to everybody. And it's uh, it's great to be talking to everybody. But the the obviously, weather and climate news yep. this year... Can't avoid talking about it. It's been in the, the regular mm-hmm. news as well as the science news. We've had our triple dip La Nina, three La Nina events yeah. in a row, which yeah. is not unheard of, but it mm. is pretty rare. The last time it happened, I think, was towards the end of the millennium drought at the turn to the 21st century. Oh, yeah. So we've had record-breaking rains all along the East Coast. Sydney's wettest year on record. Like, we've been whinging really? about the weather here in Melbourne, and with good reason. It's been rubbish, but it's the wettest year on record in Sydney. Mm. Records there go back to 1859. Wow. And the old records that I use for my research suggest it's the wettest year since about 1820. So the wettest wow. year there in 200 years since white invasion. So, yeah. you know... Thanks, La Nina. That's it's been. It's been. It's been. Been, been weird. Yeah, it's been wet. It's been yeah. full on. It's been devastating for lots of people. Yeah. And now it's interesting, you know, in the weather and science research community, we spent so many decades researching drought, and now 
there's a big shift. Yeah. <laughs> lots and lots of people researching the weather events that cause these kinds of floods and how they are changing because, of course, it's easier to put the fingerprints of climate change on a heat record, on a heat wave, but trying to understand how increased temperatures are affecting how much water is available in the atmosphere, mm. where that water is moving around, how it makes the atmosphere ready to drop that rain. Mm. That's a much more tricky puzzle. So I think we're going to see a lot more science about that in the in the coming years and in the coming decades. But when you do get three La Ninas in a row, when you get any La Nina, generally you get increased rainfall, as we've seen, but you also tend to get colder temperatures, which mm. is also what we've seen this year. We've already had our coldest summer temperature on record yeah. here in Australia, yeah. in Victoria, sorry. Yeah. Snow on the snow. hills. Snow. I mean, yeah. it's not uncommon to get snow no, on the happens. hills yeah. in, in December in Victoria, but, like, come on, man, give us a break. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky yeah. the weather's glorious. Yeah. I actually love the cold weather, so I'm, I'm okay with a little bit of coolness. I, I, you know, I don't want it to be freezing, but mm. I don't want it to be 40 either. No, that's so true. something in the middle for yeah. me is just... And know. that's what La Nina provides, I reckon. Mm. It's, it's cooler but often the heat waves can be more prolonged. So as we move into the summer, we might see that happening yeah. just just a little bit. But um, as we're speaking about temperature, I did want to mention the passing, or maybe Shane, you can yeah. tell us about Look, the- So this is interesting. I, um, I was very saddened to hear, I, I received an email from a, a gentleman named David Stedman um, during the week. And David is not in Australia at the moment, he's overseas, but he listens to our show. And he sent me an email to talk about his father, um, Robert, or Bob Stedman, who passed away on November 28th this year. And this is a name that I didn't know. And I actually feel very bad that I didn't know this name because it's one that I, I feel everyone should. So um, Robert Stedman, Dr. Robert Stedman, um, was a, he had a PhD in textile engineering from the University of New South Wales, and he was working on a lot of aspects of textiles and, you know, what we wear and how we feel in various temperatures. And what he recognised was that it wasn't enough to just recognise temperature. You also had to recognise things like, you know, radiative heat, convective heat, all the different things that sort of go into what we feel, you know, levels of evaporation, humidity, wind, all of these things. And so, and when you pull these together, you know, temperature, wind, humidity, cloud cover, all of these things together, you get what he um, referred to essentially as the feels like temperature. Mm, so, the you know, apparent we, temperature. The apparent temperature. Mm. So we all, we all get on, you know, the bomb app or wherever else, and sorry, the Bureau. The Bureau. Bureau app. And... And we look it up and we say, you know, 10 degrees, oh, hang on, yeah, feels like 1.4. That's more like it because I'm freezing my butt off. Mm. Well, Robert Stedman was the one who came up with that. And, in fact, he published a paper back in May 1993 um, when he was in the School of Agriculture at La Trobe University here in Melbourne called Norms of Apparent Temperature in Australia. And that paper was the basis for the uh. feels-like temperature scale, which has gone around the world. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and amazing that um, Dr. Stedman was, you know, he's based in, in textiles. That was his mm-hmm. area of expertise. And he was yeah. keen He was keen on going in the outdoors as well for his hobbies and these yeah. kinds of things. And he realised that the information that he was getting to prepare for, oh, <laughs> crying babies. Yeah, yeah, and and like I think that that for me is something. Just learning about him, um, you know, I want to thank his son David for sending this in. David, I hope you get to hear this particular show and, and realise that you know we're saluting your dad and all the amazing work that he did. And and hopefully a lot of people will be more aware after hearing this that um, Robert Bob Stedman was um, the person who came up with the 
the feels like aspect of temperature and what we mm. read and what we actually care about more exactly um, when we mm. look up uh, what the weather's going to be yeah. on the day and, and not just how it feels like the way that he calculated it was what you would normally wear on that kind of mm. day and then the wind chill and the yeah. evaporation and humidity all these types of things to yeah. help us actually prepare to get outside every day oh, which is absolutely amazing. and i got to say i was looking through the paper from um, 994 and you know i got PhD in physics, folks. I'm pretty good at maths. I capped out on page two. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was, wow. It's huh. it's a very detailed paper. Like this is not some sort of sort of. Oh yeah, let's call it a little bit warmer because the sun's out. No, no. This is a very <laughs> detailed set of calculations on how to determine what what that um what that feels like. Wow. So it's an impressive uh, communication stunt by the bureau. Oh, it's not stunt. A yeah. feat to say it's the feels like temperature. Yeah. Nobody look yeah, at the equations yeah, too much. You yes. might get scared. But please <laughs> look at this value before you leave the house. Yeah. So I'm. I'm Petitioning the uh, the bureau to rename it instead of feels like it should be called the the Stedman temp. Oh yes, that'd be nice. That'd be great. Mm. Let's do that. But anyway, um, so a big salute mm. to Robert Stedman and uh, all the great work that he did, and thank you for making us all more aware of what we're experiencing every day and and what goes into that. Absolutely, which is, which is not just the absolute temperature mm. that you're measuring. So, and and thank you, David, for sending me that email. Really appreciate getting things like that. Okay, uh, let's go around the room and see what else is happening. Ewan, you're looking pretty excited. What's uh, uh, really floated your boat other than going to Nepal. <laughs> Nepal was excellent. Highly recommend. But uh, I think similar to Lyndon, you know, with climate and weather, which are sort of always in or around the news, uh, so is the environment. Uh, it affects and, you know, shapes our lives in a fairly profound way. And I think the story that I found really fascinating this year was about Tasmanian tiger. And maybe not for the reason you think, but so there's, of course, this initiative, this project to try and resurrect uh, from the dead, literally, an extinct animal, the Tasmanian tiger. The last known animal was in uh, the Hobart Zoo, 1936, called Benjamin. Um, there's a little factoid for you for your trivia questions. And what they're basically going to do is attempt to take stem cells of a um, related species, so the fat-tailed dunnart, um, and try and modify its um, stem cells to the point that it basically becomes a thylacine. And, you know, if this was actually done, it would be um, an absolutely massive scientific achievement, right up there with some of the best scientific achievements, I would argue, of all time. Um, But I think what I find fascinating about this story is not so much whether it's possible, and I actually still doubt that it's possible, um, whether you could have um, a self-sustaining population that's genetically diverse in Tasmania that's basically started from, um, you know, a lab as opposed to, you know, existing animals in the wild. I think obviously we'll find out the answer to that. But I think what I found interesting about this story is the bigger conversations that it raises about extinction and what our role is in terms of, you know, stopping species from going extinct and if they do, potentially bringing them back but also about actually just being really bold and adventurous in science. Mm. So there was a lot of very heavy criticism delivered towards um, Andy Pask and his team um, at the Tigger Lab in uh, University of Melbourne when they basically announced that they'd got this funding to take this project on. But I sort of reflected on it and I thought, well, I'm sure Shane would agree here that I- I'm sure when people propose for the very first time, we're going to go to the moon um, and we're going to do these crazy things in space, people would have said, you're crazy, it's just not possible. And so I think there's sort of, I think, a lesson there to learn from the scientific community itself about when someone proposes something that's really ambitious and adventurous, it may seem impossible, but it might not be. And I think along the way, of course, we can learn a lot too. And that's obviously been the case with space exploration. Um, but that's also what 
um, you know, Andy's, Andy's team has been arguing that this project is not just about the Tasmanian tiger or the thylacine. Um, in the process of trying to undertake this project, there will be a lot of spin-off benefits for hopefully um, understanding more about the genetics of existing species and helping, therefore, to promote their conservation. So I think, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating story because it opens up so many other bigger conversations about the environment and about conservation. Yeah, it's a great one, you And I think you, you, you're right about um, doing great things as well. I think... Um, um, there's so much funding at the moment that goes to what I would call incremental type work, where you almost have to prove you've already done it before you can get the, the money these days. Whereas these sorts of projects where there's such a long horizon to get there and you just don't know what's going to pop up along the way. Uh, uh, if you look back through the history of science, so many of the great big achievements in science are from this sort of work, not not incremental stuff. So it's, um yeah. And look, there's there's some ethics that needs to catch up as well. Um, and that's part of it. That's part of it. So you can't do it alone. It's got to involve other sectors and so forth. But um, but that's part of it. And that's important that that yep. continuity between science and other parts of the community are there, there as well. So that matters. Thanks, Ewan. Yep. Uh, Dr. Jen. Well, I, I have a slightly less serious story, <coughs> but, but I think one that is just as important, Dr. Shane. So I think we're all aware of examples of kind of humans and, and wildlife getting into a bit of conflict, but I think this year there was a really excellent example, and that was the cockatoos in Sydney. There was this, you know, very unique story because it showed not only amazing social learning by the cockatoos, learning how to open wheelie bins, mm. but also the humans responding and developing their own practices to try and stop the cockatoos getting into the bins and spreading rubbish around. And, and we all saw this amazing footage of, of these gorgeous, gorgeous cockatoos getting up to all sorts of really dexterous tricks to try and get into these wheelie bins. And and so it got reported in the news as this amazing arms race happening in the southern suburbs of, of Sydney because, you know, every time people came up with a new way of trying to deter cockatoos for get, from getting into bins, whether it was, you know, putting a brick on top of the lid or, mm. or you know, a heavy water bottle or shoes wedged in to try and <laughs> stop the bin, I think, you know, no matter what ideas people came up with to try and stop the cockies getting in, the cockies learned ways to get around um, so that then they could get in and start spreading the food around. And, you know, so you can kind of laugh and say, yeah, you know, it's funny, but, and it's fascinating to see this this learning behaviour. Um, but, you know, it's a really, really impressive example and it had global significance in terms of news reporting because it meant we would be able to add parrots to this list of animals capable of having a foraging culture which gets passed from one individual to another. And the fact that humans were just doing exactly the same thing in response, chatting to their neighbours, how did you stop the cockies getting into your bin and <laughs> stealing, you know, the pizza? And, of course, people were worried about the cockies also. It's not very healthy for cockies to be feeding on pizza or whatever it is in the bin. So I just loved that, um, yeah, these researchers went out, they documented 50 different bin protection methods and documented the subcultures of the cockies finding ways around all of these bin protection methods and then the people following along and coming up with new ways of trying to stop the cockies getting in. I just thought it was a ripper of a science story this year. Yeah, see, that just makes me feel a little left out, like in my suburb, because... 
The most adventurous <laughs> thing that happens with us in that regard is that the council don't bother to collect the bin and you've got to phone them, which happens about every third time. So, it may be that you have copies <laughs> that come, open the bin, get the stuff out and then seal it up in, in the dead of night. Oh, yeah. yeah that, that's no one's looking. You've yeah. got the smartest, cleanest cockies in the country. It's possible. It's possible. They don't make a sound. Yeah, oh, yeah. Still well, cocky. <laughs> who knows how long we have to ma- We may have to wait. I mean, at the moment, the ability for, for, bin, for cockies to open these wheelie bins is unique to southern Sydney, but the behaviour is absolutely mm. spreading. So let's see how many years before we're talking about this arms race happening in Melbourne. Let's, let's you know, keep our tabs on it. And you just know that when that does when it does come down here and, and Shane's bins are uh, just besieged by cockies, the Sydney side is going to go, yeah, we did that years ago. <laughs> yeah. You also, you also know that my defence is going to involve lasers. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not sure how, how powerful or what colour, but there will be lasers I think involved. They're listening, I, Dr Shane. Would, you know the cockies I, are listening. I would, I would urge you to be very cautious because, as Jen has just told us, they found ways to overcome this. You raise the arms level, technically, you're asking for trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that could well happen. Triple R. I'm the artist formerly known as Dr. Shane with a slightly <laughs> modified voice today, uh, but <laughs> made it in somehow. Dr. Linden, before your uh, newly um, produced child goes crazy <laughs> on us in the studio. Before she uh, makes her radio debut. Yeah, you had, uh, you had the second piece of news. That- yeah, oh, I guess I was thinking about the news that stuck with me this year, the science news that I was able to consume and going on from Jen's arms race, thinking about a battle mm-hmm. that science is exploring. I wanted to talk about a couple of papers about that were looking to see things that we had in common um, right. across the world. And there was one about uh, smell and there was one about sound. So there was one study that was done by Australian and international researchers that exposed different people from all sorts of communities around the world to different smells. And it turns out that um, internationally we have a smell that we love, we have a taste that we love, and that is the taste of vanilla, oh, right. the smell of vanilla. Which And, and one we don't like, Chris KP. <laughs> I thought you were going to say strawberry. You I thought you were going to say no one eats me. the Neapolitan. That's a bit. You smell lovely, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so vanilla is a is a universally sort of the most liked scent and possibly the researchers suggest there's an evolutionary component yeah, here, right. you know, to be attracted to things that are generally going to be safe. Are there, are there other sources of that smell slash taste than actually vanilla? Because it has quite specific mm. growing yeah, needs true. and mm. pollination needs. Yeah, I, honestly, mm. I don't I don't know. I guess you can always tell that fake vanilla smell, can't you, or that fake vanilla taste compared to yeah. well, yes. authentic <laughs> vanilla bean. Yeah, true. Because yeah. I can imagine if it was something like citrus. You know, yeah, like, more widespread. More widespread yes. and, and, and good. Good yes. for you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, maybe good for you, but then the, that smell chemically related to more acidic smells that yeah, might not be so good correct. for you. And I guess a lot of people are allergic to citrus, so that could be. Ah, yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Anyway, but this other study that was published uh, in the middle of the year was looking at sound. And this was a study done again uh, by Australian and international researchers, and they worked with uh, communities across Papua New Guinea, and they played different sounds, different songs, in a major and minor key, you know, a major key generally being happy, uplifting, you know, I'm talking about... Disney kind of songs and a minor, <laughs> minor chords, more your funeral type, oh, type yeah. tunes. Yeah. And then they also uh, played those kinds of songs, that kind of music to people in Sydney, some musicians, some not musicians. And the study, the results showed that all of the groups associated the major chord sounds and songs with happiness, right, right? with positivity, and that's generally what we think in Western culture, except for... 
one, except for uh, the group of Papua New Guinea, uh-huh. Papua New Guineans who weren't exposed to Western music. Yeah, so they oh. had different groups of people from Papua New Guinea who had different levels of exposure to Western music, which, you know, it's really, really interesting to think that this study, you know, they didn't, their results were statistically significant, but they didn't jump to too many conclusions that they said it could be that our idea that major chords, positive music as we would see it, is not universally considered positive if you haven't grown up exposed to that. Yeah, so some things that we have in common and some things that maybe we don't have in common, which I don't know, I just that story really stuck with me this year Mm. as I was listening Mm. to Disney song after Disney song (laughs) after Disney song. (laughs) There are some minor key Disney songs too. Yeah. How do they go? Well, I think um, um, what's what's the uh, the bad uncle in, in Lion King? I'm pretty sure that he had oh, his yes. song. Scar. Scar. Scar's song yeah. is in a minor key, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Did you like well, how I quickly I came up with that name? I, I did, actually, yes. <laughs> Impressive, huh? Yeah. I don't uh, play impressive. that to my toddler. <laughs> yeah, Nobody wants to hear yeah. me prepared <laughs> at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it may not be uh, yeah, the best in childcare, correct. <laughs> yeah. Mm, wow. Very good, uh, Dr. Linden. I think... Um, so you've been playing Disney songs while smelling vanilla candles all Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep, clinging desperately to those things, <laughs> hoping that would get us through. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Linden. And if you need to depart at this time, you are very welcome. It's been great having you on the show here. Thanks and, for having uh, me, Dr. I know Dr. you've been working on other projects at the same time, but good to see you back in the studio. Couldn't yeah. miss out on saying goodbye to the Triple R family before the year's out. Yeah, well, feel free to stick around. Mm. Uh, we're not booting you. We're just giving you the option. So now, uh, who else we got there? Dr. Ray. Uh, what has been uh, exciting you this year? So, Dr. Shane, I always get anxious about picking the best story. Um, first, because I'm always afraid I'm not going to be on the same level as everyone else on the stories I pick. I think about big science, and sometimes it's a little quirky. But one thing I thought about, you know, I am all about loving to see engagement through this show and our audience grow. And for me, it's one Uber driver at a time on the way into the station <laughs> me pitching the show and saying, please... But um, one thing that, that has been great is just for me is that, you know, family interest where family members will sometimes feed me suggested stories. And, and often they might not work or, or just timing doesn't work because they find it and the news is too late. So there was one story this year that I wanted to bring up, but I was afraid about the timing. Uh, and, it was, uh, it, and it was suggested by a family member. And it was on um, a, a, a Swiss cheesemaker working with researchers from Bern University, where they actually played music into cheese for six months while it aged <laughs> to see if it affected the taste. Mm. And they, they didn't do it with blaring speakers. They actually did it with transducers piping the lower frequency waves actually into the cheese. And, and they did a, a range of different music, including Led Zeppelin, a tribe, a tribe called Quest and Mozart. And then had a cheese tasting on these different nine different wheels of Emmental or cheese, where um, I think the scientific outcome was that they did notice different tastes in the cheese from different music. Uh, there was a little bit of controversy over which cheese gave the which cheese tasted the best. While hip hop, by most of the judges, felt was the best cheese. One of the judges felt that perhaps hip hop was not the sweetest cheese out of out of the nine wheels. But regardless, and, and that gets into some challenges about taste and science. That taste can be a little subjective, and there's mm. a lot that goes into the science of how we taste. We eat with our eyes and our and our taste buds and our smell. But um, but also that regardless <laughs> of who's tasted the best, that there were differences in taste by putting different energy into these cheeses as they aged over time. And, uh, you know, in the area of quirky, that really was was one of the highlights of the year for me. 
Yeah, that's uh, got to be up there for the Ig Nobels, I would have thought. I like that. Yeah. I like very, that uh, very important work. Very, and very presumably, <laughs> presumably they didn't go with any Disney tracks because that would have been cheesy. <laughs> I would like to apologise to all the listeners for Chris KP. <laughs> Last 30 minutes of the show, I've got to get all this rubbish Jim, out. You've got to get all your stuff out. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, let's go over to Stacey. Right. She's already made one inappropriate comment about my voice, but uh, let's risk it. <laughs> You just you just wait. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, you won't invite me back for next year. But um, well, I'm surprised no one has mentioned this science story. Um, but really, nothing made scientists croon in 2022, like the release of the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Oh yeah, mm, the delicious yeah. salami James Webb Telescope images. <laughs> 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 oh, okay. We've got a counterpoint here. Um, but yes, just to jog people's memories, um, so the James Webb, Webb Telescope was deployed la- late last year, but um, the images were first released this year. And um, the telescope is 100 times more powerful than Hubble, and it just served up some incredible imagery, um, sort of never-before-seen views of, you know, the cosmos and images that are, you know, some dating back 13 billion years ago. So it's pretty, uh, back in time, you know, so it's pretty, um, uh, they were pretty impressive. And one of the most notable images was uh, that of um, Carina Nebula. And that's that star forming region of gas and dust and like baby stars, um, you know, located 7,600 light years from Earth. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I, I guess that's up there for 2022. The, the, um, you know, the power of this particular uh, telescope and um, and and the imagery. Now, I was, I was last night. I was. At, Googling, Googling, of course. Um, and, you know, one of the common Google searches was, are the images from uh, the James Webb telescope real? <laughs> because oh, wow. it just, they, they just looked <laughs> so out good. of this world. Yeah, yeah, it looked like something that you might generate through, uh, I don't know, the AI uh, mm. text to image <laughs> imagery, but um, they're pretty impressive. Yeah. Look, it's amazing, isn't it? I was going to mention a little bit about that myself, but um, when we were sitting here at this exact time last year, you know, the launch is, uh, was just about to occur. And of course, then we had that three to four month deployment period where slowly but surely NASA and, and the teams at the European Space Agency and so forth had to unfold the various components of the, the telescope because, you know, it's, you know, when you, when you unwrap it all, um, as I like to think, it's about the size of a tennis court. And yeah. guess what? You can't fit a tennis court in the rocket. So it had to be all folded up, you know, like origami. And to unfold all that without any problems is quite amazing. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the things that many people wouldn't be aware is one of the reasons for the one of the earlier delays for launch was that the the shield that protects the sensitive instrument from the sun actually tore <gasps> during the test deployment. And so, you know, you can imagine as they're unfolding it this year. Mm-hmm. You know, there would have been some concerns about that. And not to mention the fact that it's it's not near Earth. You know, Hubble mm. is, you know, you look straight up and I think Hubble's, is it closer than Canberra to Melbourne? I think it is. Like, it's really, really? close. Like, Hubble's really close. It's in low Earth orbit, right? Whereas the James Webb Telescope is, what is it, three and a half to four times further away from the than the moon is from Earth. Mm. It's in a, what's called the Lagrange point, which is a sort of gravitational zero point, if you like, where it can sit there stably. Mm. It's not quite at the point, orbits the point, because there might be some crap at that point. But anyway, um, so we can't get to it. You know, if there's a problem with it, it's good night. 
And um, but it's been performing just beautifully, and it's not just the images too. It's bringing back um, spectroscopic data. So that's where you point the telescope at, say, for example, the moon of Titan, and you examine. They've got these beautiful images examining the cloud composition based on the spectroscopic yeah. data. So the the light that reflects off that particular object and what what happens to that light gives you an idea of what it's made of. And so the Webb Telescope's given us all this incredible new data about various locations. And, of course, there's a whole series of extrasolar planets, so planets that are outside of our solar system that, you know, are the next targets for, for Hubble, and they'll be Hubble, Webb. And we'll be pointing the Webb uh, and the Hubble, might as well do them both, um, at, uh, at that and, and seeing what they're made of because, you know, that's where we start to work out what some of these planets that are a long way away are actually comprised of. But I'm not sure, Stacey, did you see when they, um, the other mission that NASA did, of course, was the Asteroid Impact Redirection mm. Mission mm-hmm. and both Hubble and the Webb Telescope were pointed at the small asteroid when that impact occurred and you could see the, mm. the sort of impact flare from both telescopes. So, Amazing yeah. stuff. Amazing stuff. Pretty amazing. And also just watching videos of the scientists also, <laughs> you know, the people oh, involved. Yeah. In, um, <clears throat> you know, and seeing their thrill and excitement after, you know, years and years and years of preparation uh, and getting some successful images back. It's, you know, it it's, um, sends a bit of a chill down your spine. Really yeah. Cool. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the most lovely moments for me in 30 years of radio was when I was able to um, interview uh, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell um, while we were in lockdown, actually. And that was the second time we'd interviewed her on the show. We interviewed her once 20 years earlier when we'd first started talking about this new type of telescope. And when I interviewed her, of course, um, we hadn't launched the Webb telescope and, and Jocelyn's, you know, getting fairly senior now. And she actually cried in the interview because she was worried she'd never get to see it happen. So it was an absolute delight to learn that, you know, she's seen this happen. It's, you know, been one of the wonders of her life to be part of the astronomical community and do so much. And um, and to see you know to see this this telescope launched and I'm, I'm sure she sits there looking at these the data coming in because it's just incredible um, some of the, yeah. the images coming in so thank you Stacey one of my favourites definitely this is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organisation in Melbourne Australia Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And we are going through a bit of a roundup of all the science that's happened in the year. And it has been a big year, I've got to say. I think uh, Gracie over there in Texas has been uh, at the epicenter of science. Is that what we call Texas, Gracie? Yes, if you want to call that the epicenter of science, sure. <laughs> What's exciting? We do you? have a lot of cancer research centers, so that's something to be said. Yeah. What's what's been one of your highlights for the year? Yeah, so actually I talked about this uh kind of news story in uh one of the news episodes that I did earlier this year, probably like March or April. And I love the study so much that it was my highlight for the whole year. So the study was published in March and researchers in China wanted to track which animal species were in certain parts of a nature preserve. And someone thought, why not use leeches yeah. for this? Yep. So I, I can't imagine being that person that suggested that in that room <laughs> and just seeing everyone else's reactions of like, what are you thinking? Leeches, what? Um, so over 160 park rangers collected tens of thousands of leeches by hand, 30,000 leeches, put them into little tubes, um, 
And they basically wanted to know if they could use the DNA from the blood that the leeches feasted on to track which animal species were in certain areas of the nature preserve. So they would use this for decision making. So they actually found 86 different species uh, and where each of these species preferred to live and travel in the preserve. So they could actually track the animals through this DNA of, of blood from the leeches. Hmm. Um, and so they actually uh, found out, though, that the animals tended to live kind of away from where the humans traveled through, indicating that potentially the human interaction may be driving some of these animals away from areas where that human traffic was heaviest. Um, and so they also are looking into potentially using mosquitoes for this as well. So looking at blood from mosquitoes uh, to be able to track animals um, throughout other nature preserves and just kind of seeing this take off as an idea as, as opposed to, I guess most people would think, you know, technology, uh, you know, cameras, tracking tags on the animal, things like that. Um, but this is actually a lot cheaper than using a lot of that technological equipment. And uh, it doesn't require a lot of expertise, apparently. Uh, you just need a lot of people to catch the leeches. So. Well, you could catch leeches just by standing in the water for long enough, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not happy about that. <laughs> I just have this. Uh, when you say leeches, I hear African queen. <laughs> Am I the only one? Really? <laughs> Am I the only one? You're one of a small group. Small group that remembers that film and there was a... Showing, showing your age, Shane. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I bet there are two listeners out there who have the exact same image of those things being really... You know, I don't like leeches. It's, it disturbed me seeing that as a child and it's messed with me ever since. Well, it's good to know that these leeches are being used in this way, Gracie. Does the research involve a blender? <laughs> no, I don't think so. It's good to hear. No, no leeches were harmed yeah. in the work. No leeches were harmed in the work, but they were removed from their native environment. Yes. Put in tubes and removed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we do tend to think of leeches and mosquitoes as being these really pesky, annoying creatures. Uh, so it's kind of nice to see that there are potentially some positive uses. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, you know, they are a good little uh, gatherer of, of samples yeah. in ways yeah. and from animals that we would find hard to track and, and necessarily, you know, connect with. So, you know, in a relatively benign way, I'm sure no none of the animals that the leeches were feeding on were harmed too badly. So, good stuff. Yeah, actually, out of the 86 different species that I mentioned, humans were one of those species. So, oh. unfortunately, some humans... <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're able to be tracked from the leeches. I love so. that. Yeah, you can imagine the, yeah. the sort of divorce court sort of scenario coming out where, you know, someone <laughs> says, well, we've got the data from the leeches and we know where you were. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, leeches, the new defense, the leech defense. Thank you, Gracie. Good stuff. Now, uh, Chris KP. Mm. Um, look, the, before I tell you this this story, uh, which I think was from May-ish, mid-ish of the year, I think, yeah. uh, I should just tell you that it comes from one of the one of the coolest sounding um, research groups, if I can put it that way. Um, this is from the University of the West of England's Unconventional Computing Laboratory. Unconventional, yeah. Mm. Wouldn't you, and, that, and that that's not it's not quite as glamorous as um as as you and Stylusine story, but I love the idea of they they've named this again. We're yeah. unconventional. If you come to me with a tedious, ordinary, suburban, boring, yeah. standard, or repetitive topic, I'm not interested. It needs to be edgy. See, I never did that when I ran my own centre of excellence yeah. years ago. It had a you know good but boring title. If oh. I named it again now, I'd something like the Unexpected Results Centre. That's see that's that is great because that basically anything that's expected is not tolerated. We just don't do it. We don't do it. Yeah, but if something weird comes out, you know it's going to come from us. <laughs> I think there's a lot to be and, said for that. And the marketing of that, like people say, did you hear about the thing? The 
that's odd. Did that come from the unexpected results centre? I assume it did. Immediately, yes, of course. the assumption yes. is there. Oh, yeah, it's a bumper sticker right there. Trademarked. Yeah. <laughs> next time. Next yeah. time. Uh, anyway, so what they – and, look, I, I'm assuming that this uh, this piece of research is, is representative mm. of their work. Yeah. Ultimately, what they did, and I'm cutting a lot of background out of this, of course, um, is they put uh, microelectrodes into the substrates on which fungi will grow. Okay. In order to test, because fungi, of course, have, give, have electrical signals. Mm. That's, that's part of them yeah. being alive and sensing the environment around them. And what they did, when they did this, is they detected spikes in activity as the hyphae, which is the sort of thin hair-like part of the, fung- of the fungi, as the hyphae spreading out through the substrate, they saw these spikes. But it wasn't just a spike of activity. It was spikes in recognisable short pieces, which at first blush looked a hell of a lot like words. Oh, wow. Yeah, like there were recognisable shapes of pulses of stuff and about 50 of them. So, you know, the, the research is going, it looks like a language, <laughs> but like, that's... Is this fungi to fungi? Yeah, well, fungi, fungi to the itself? ether. I don't know. Oh, it's yeah, okay. out there. Yeah. I don't know. A shouting into the void. Um, mm. But, I mean, it's, it sounds a little bit NQR. Um, what I like about it, of course, is that, uh, you know, I mean, the it's so tempting to do this. They, 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 and I love that they came out and said this. They said, yeah, it looks like words. Like they're communicating, right? Then they also said, but yeah, but the ends of these things that are pushing out there, they're electrically active. So as soon as they start moving at all, you're going to get a spike. That's mm. just what's going to happen. Right. So there's every chance that it means nothing. Yep. But on the other hand, you know, the same, you know, recognisable short things are, are being pushed out there. And, and they see particular, um, in particular situations, there are particular responses. So when they find new wood, which is what they eat... Yep. Then you get this recognisable peak in activity. Is there anything at the bottom of this story that says <laughs> the researchers had recently seen the film Avatar right before writing, <laughs> writing this well, paper? I think. I think. On the other hand, I think the the makers of Avatar probably read, read the, this. Read yeah, the paper. I think it's yeah, far okay. more yep. I thought you were going to yep. say, "Was it published on the first of April?" No, it no. was not a little later than that. <laughs> anyway, but yes. So it looks like there is some recognisable activity. Mm. I think it's. It, it's probably too soon, if not a bridge too far, to suggest it's actually communication. But it's certainly something that can be picked up by, well, at least the researchers and presumably other fungi. Weird and wild stuff. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. All right, uh, next on the list, Dr Ewan, back to you, buddy. What have you got? Uh, I feel like we should um, quickly go to another story because mine will be a sad story. We should have flipped it around. <laughs> I'll, talk about, I'll talk about the... Uh, <laughs> the the Living Planet Index, which is a really important um, story, it comes out regularly. It's basically an assessment of how um, populations of the world's species are tracking. Mm. Um, and WWF is the main, I guess, sponsor of this study. And um, basically it shows that wildlife populations that have been surveyed, so not all wildlife populations, but just those that have been surveyed, have declined by nearly 70% um, since uh, 1970, right? And we're talking about, I think it's 33,000 populations that are assessed, uh, and these are vertebrates. So we're talking about fish, amphibians, mammals, birds, reptiles. Um, So, uh, of course, invertebrates we know are in trouble, and then, of course, there's plants as well. So I think, you know, it might not be a surprise to many of our listeners, but it, it really does ram home just what we're up against. We have these, you know, dual crises that we're, we're facing, that is climate change, but also biodiversity decline and extinction, which I think is just as pressing as the climate change issue is. Um, and what they show also is that freshwater populations actually have been um, the hardest hit in a comparative sense. So they've actually suffered declines of 83% uh, since 1970. So I think it it really does show what we're up against. And if you want to have a look at biodiversity loss by region, uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, 94%. 
Uh, Africa, 66%. Europe and Central Asia, 18%. North America, 20%. And the Asia-Pacific region, of which, of course, we're a part, 55%. Now, you might think, well, why is Europe and Central Asia so low? Well, in some parts, of course, in Europe, they've already gotten rid of a lot of their biodiversity centuries ago. So um, when you look at those um, numbers, you have to, of course, look at the historical context of what's already been lost as well. So it really just, I guess, shows that we're not tracking very well uh, and we really need to lift our game if we're um, going to have a, a prosperous future, which at the moment is not looking particularly likely. But, um, yeah, so someone quickly talk about a, a good news story. Yeah, we'll call that a low light. <laughs> but, that, but an important one to, yeah. to note. Thank you, Ewan. I think uh, there are very few people I know that uh, are sort of fighting this battle more than you. So a big thank you to you and, and of course, Jen as well. Um, but uh, you in particular, I know you're always out there battling with politicians and everyone else to try and take advantage of this. So a big thank you on behalf of all of us for your efforts. Stacey, uh, what have you got for us? Uh, I've got to get off mute uh, for starters. Um, so the other one that I came, um, was excited about this year was the human um, genome has finally been sequenced in its entirety this year. Really? Um, yeah. So, you know, everyone remembers the Human Genome Project. So that, you know, kicked off in the 90s. And I remember sort of looking at that, you know, as a budding scientist at school. And it was completed in 2003, but it, it only covered 92% of the... What are you two nodding at? Uh, Chris and I are just <laughs> laughing when you said in school. I, I actually remember talking to... As a, as, a, as a teacher, talking to year 11 and 12 students and telling them about how exciting this yeah. is going to be and they, they, they didn't care. Uh, yeah, just, well, you know... <laughs> the age difference. We yeah. love it. We love it. You know, I remember, you know, I'd already finished my physics degree at that point thinking, <laughs> yeah. If only. Well, you know, Einstein and Go Go Crew are not ageist, are they? No, we're not. We're all old. Um. <laughs> Except for Gracie. Except for Gracie. Uh, yes, but anyway, 2003 was when it was completed when uh, you old uh, crotchety lecturers were talking about it. Um, and uh, yeah, only 92% of it was completed. And the technologies to decipher the gaps in that remaining 8% just weren't available at the time. But now, obviously with, um, you know, scientific advancements in um, laboratory techniques and tools as well as computational methods, um, they were able to finally sequence uh, the remaining gaps uh, and released in April this year. Um, and it was sort of important because they've included, well, they've found sort of, you know, numerous genes as well as sort of other repetitive DNA sections. But, um, it, you know, some of these gaps sort of explain how particular cells function and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's a final piece in the puzzle um, and it'll help scientists sort of understand how DNA differs from person to person as well. So there's sort of applications mm. for um, precision medicine and things like that. But, yeah, I thought that was a, a cool and complete closure to the human genome. Very nice stuff, Stacey. I had no idea, actually, that we hadn't done the last little bit. I guess we haven't been talking about it much lately. Yeah, so well, yeah. It's, uh, it's good to know. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Chris KP, I understand you've been driving around supermarkets trying to get some um, baby spinach. You know, I, I know the importance of leafy greens, uh, not just to the economy, <laughs> it, it, especially it, the good ones. It's just the scene when he he come, climbs out of the lake or river. It's not just that there's leeches on his back, but there's like the very theatrical music, like evil villain music when you see the leeches. <laughs> yeah. So it's. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure we're all talking about the same thing. Uh, <laughs> Gracie, another piece of news all the way from uh, Texas for us. What else has been exciting you over there in the US? Yes. So 
this year, uh, we actually signed our first uh, legislation to take a really large step towards slowing global warming, which is a pretty big deal. So the U.S. is actually the world's second largest producer of greenhouse gases. But before this year, we'd never actually passed any sort of legislation to try to substantially reduce those emissions. Um, so in August, we actually uh, signed in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and so it's providing $369 billion over the next decade to support things like electricity from renewable sources, nuclear power, while also kind of moving towards um, electric vehicles and funding more research into ways we can reduce industrial emissions as well. Um, and so several independent research groups have already calculated uh, that it should put the U.S. on track to cut the greenhouse gas emissions by 40 percent uh, by the end of this decade. Mm. That's so, a good. That's a good step. It's finally, good step. finally making some progressive steps. Yeah. Yeah, a forward step um, because those numbers have been going in the wrong direction for a very, very long time. Thanks, Gracie. Uh, Dr. Jen. Well, you're going to say there's a bit of a theme with me today, Shane. I, I couldn't resist going back to my roots and, and finding some cool animal stories. So first we had cockies raiding bins. Um, the next thing I have to tell you is we found out some very, very important information this year in Australia, and that is that sometimes octopuses throw things mm -hmm. at each other. Oh, yeah, other. yeah. I think that was a really important news story, right? I know there's some big picture climate change and biodiversity crisis and stuff, but you know, really, because <laughs> octopuses are octopuses are known to be pretty solitary. But there was a group of researchers working on gloomy octopus, which I love the name, <laughs> gloomy octopus in in Java Bay, and they live in really high densities there. And so the team of researchers decided that they'd film the creatures with underwater cameras to see whether they actually interacted with each other at all, because the evidence would suggest that probably they don't interact. And what they saw was these octopuses kind of gathering silt or algae and shells um, and then piffing them at each other and propelling them with, with water um, from their siphon. And, you know, the researchers said, look, some of the times it seems like they were just kind of throwing away debris or, or food scraps, but it really does look like some of the times they're actually throwing things at each other deliberately. Other octopuses are ducking to miss the impact um, and we don't know why. We think it's some form of, you know, social behaviour, some form of communication. But I just think it's essential that we all go into New Year knowing that octopuses chuck stuff at each other. Yeah, play I think dodge, that's really dodge important. Ball. Doesn't it, doesn't it make yeah, you wish you yeah. had a doesn't it make you wish you had a siphon? A siphon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just you know, I just I'm looking at it. Yeah, this footage and thinking, that's so cool. That's yeah. it's it's not better than a hand. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. nice addition. I just I Well, like when you've and... got eight hands, when you've got eight <laughs> hands plus a siphon, you've got a yeah. lot of options. Yeah. Correct. I mean, imagine going into that dodgeball tournament. And you got eight options. You know what I... Maybe I, nine. I, yeah, well, yeah, at, <laughs> at least eight. I don't know. Was there any evidence, Jen, of, uh, of any octopus catching anything? No, I don't. I think they, they sat down and, you know, watched octopus TV for many, many hours to, to work I'm, out what was going on. Smart, there like, was definitely dodging, but I don't think there was any catching. So maybe smart. they haven't quite evolved well, yet. Well, they're smart and, they're, and they learn. I'm just thinking, well, I am thinking throwing stuff to each other, but also imagine the juggling you could do. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Oh, imagine. Oh, big God. To be honest, though, I just want to imagine the octopuses communicating with, you, with each other and go, look, this year we're going to let them see that we throw stuff. <laughs> do not, do not catch anything on film. Do not. <laughs> we'll keep that for 2025. We're going to need something. Because everything's going pear shaped. Uh, yeah, you, that's you heard stuff. the prediction here first, Doctor Shane. We yep. will see when they start uh, juggling, catching, catching who knows? playing cricket. Yeah, the whole lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all going to happen. Very good. Uh, now, I think we've got time for one more, Doctor Ray. What do you got for us? 
Uh, it's actually along the theme that, that Gracie had, not for leeches, but using nature to study nature. Uh, and this was a story that I just thought was was rather innovative when they were studying a seagrass bed in the Bahamas, where the seagrass bed is actually the size of Portugal. And instead of diving to map it, which they, the researchers did do, they fitted seven different tiger sharks with cameras and GPSs because the tiger sharks patrol the seagrass hunting turtles and dugongs. Uh, and us, none of the video footage I found on the shark camera was, in fact, of the actual hunting part. Um, but actually use that to actually map out the seagrasses as well. So, you know, using a technology that's actually generally used to just study sharks to actually use it to study the environment and also just shows us how interrelated things are and that looking at an apex predator, you actually you have a whole ecology that you should think about. And that was a clever way to use that to study that. Yeah, it's super cool it, stuff. Yeah, it was also the closest we could get to uh, sharks with laser beams so yeah. far that I've seen in science. <laughs> again, uh, it seems like a dangerous step. <laughs> and again, again, my upbringing makes me think about shark repellent spray. I think that was in the <laughs> Batman TV show. Anyway, uh, you see where my entire education comes from? Yes, I it can. It comes from television. It's sad, isn't it? I think I, think I went right. to uni. I don't, I don't remember much about that. This, <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ray. Uh, anyway, look, before we go, the other thing I did want to mention, and, you know, Gracie sent me a rude message because she thought I would have already mentioned this. And they haven't, but there's minutes mm. to go. Mm. Um, of course, the Artemis launch, mm. uh, the new moon rocket, uh, delayed many times. Mm. When I say many, I mean twice. Um, but it was delayed a couple of times uh, for safety um, because NASA can't blow these things up, you know, lose its funding if it does. So, But successful launch uh, a few weeks back now and successful recovery mm. of the Orion craft that uh, touched back down in the Pacific just earlier this week. Amazing images of the moon, amazing data coming through. So a couple of years now till the first humans go on board the Artemis II rocket, which will go around the moon. And then in 2025, hopefully, humans will again walk on the moon as the first step towards going towards Mars. So amazing stuff there. Um, that time's going to go quick too. It's going to go quick. We'll be there before we know it. Um, you know. Not long. Anyway, a few big thank yous uh, before we end the show, Chris KP. Uh, first of all, the Triple R, the staff there are amazing as always, especially Elizabeth McCarthy, my co-producer for yeah. the show, who's always sending me amazing stuff. And, you know, she often sends me joking stuff as well, just to keep m me on my toes. <laughs> you know, like a guest that's like, sort of, shall we say, outside of science. I'm like, what? Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> Got to be on top of it because uh, sometimes I may say yes to the wrong thing. Um, to the team of amazing podcasters so if you don't listen to the show live and you listen to the podcast a big thank you to the team from the podcast group who put that together for us um i don't have the time to do all that and they do that for us as volunteers of course which is amazing we thank them huge thank you to the hundred or so guests that have come on the show this year um many from in-state and overseas uh, many phd students and uh, we love having them in because they haven't been you know whacked down to the point where they're no longer enthusiastic by the system. <laughs> They've still got some passion. Um, but a big thank you to all of those guests who've come in and the institutions that help us coordinate them as well. Um, we very much appreciate that. Um, particularly the 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes mm. group. We'll be doing that again next year. That's always a lot of fun. Um, to everyone who supported Triple R and the show during the Radiothon, a massive thank you to you. Station doesn't exist without your support. And uh, this year, once again, uh, you've come through with that support. Yeah abundance so thank you very much huge thanks to my team of co-hosts who you've heard many of them today uh dr lauren's away unfortunately chris kp dr ray dr jenny dr ailey 
Ewan, Laura, Lyndon, Stacey, Gracie, and, of course, Liv for doing her Twitter feed. She's sitting in here right now behaving herself as always. I remember Liv started when she was 15. Wow. Yeah, decade ago or longer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, folks, uh, Liv tweets the show every week, so if you haven't heard it, um, you can pick up on the Twitter feed or you can pick it up on our other um, sources through the links at Triple R. Anyway, finally, um, a big thank you to all of you for listening to the show each week. Uh We really appreciate that and we try and bring you science in a non-political and non-biased fashion every week. Um, We know that sources of that are becoming seemingly more and more limited. Yeah. So it is important. And, of course, that's what Triple R is all about as a non-commercial station. From me, a big thank you for everyone involved for 2022. We look forward to broadcasting to you again in 2023. Until then, I'll leave you with the same message I always do, which is science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great summer, and we'll see you back in about four weeks. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.